Well, good Wednesday night. We're going to get started tonight with uh, how to know what, uh, what is God's word. And um, uh, over the last probably couple months, uh, I've had people talk to me uh, in the congregation or I've had you know, conversations with people, at, even at work, about you know, where did the Bible come from? You know, what, what was some of the things that we did as a, you know, how, how do you know that, that what we have with our 66 books in the Bible is God's word? And, um, you know, I've had a lot of discussions about the Apocrypha. Uh, we've had discussions uh, in our church about, you know, why, why certain books were, were excluded from, from our 66 books. So, one of the things that I'm I'm going to teach on tonight, and um, we may we may end up doing a couple of uh, movie nights. I know uh, that we have some, um, you know, archaeological movies that you know some people may want to see. So we we may do a little bit of that as as we're going along. But I wanted to teach this because I this is a foundational thing that I got a couple of years ago when I was in Bible school. And it really helped me to have confidence in knowing how to talk to people about the Word, about the Bible, about why the Bible is worthwhile. Um, and, and, you know, there's some history here. I know some people may not like history, you know, like strict biblical history. But, you know, I think that it is important for us to understand it because when we get to a point of, of understanding how God's word was formed in our modern day. Uh, we, we then, when somebody points to the Bible, I know my cousin Jason had some atheists talk to him and tell him that the Bible was written based off of Norse mythology, that all of it came from Norse mythology. And I was sitting there going, well, Norse mythology was made in 608, uh, 682 AD. Well, that was like almost 600 years, you know, after the last book in the Bible was written. So, I mean, if, if, you're, if, if you're talking to people and you, and you don't know where the Bible comes from and they make outlandish statements, I automatically said, no, that's a lie. I want everybody to, to say this with me. That's a lie. That's, that's a, lie. a lie. You know, we need to go around and tell people that's a lie. You know, I've got plenty of people that they don't, they, they, they go to a YouTube channel or something and they listen to some idiot talk about, well, the Bible is this way or, you know, it's false because of this or because of that. Well, I hear people. I've watched some of those videos and they have nothing to back it up, but it makes sense to their argument, right? But without foundational truth, without understanding some stuff, we end up getting a lie. And I think too often Christians end up propagating lies. And we'll get into some of that more as I'm teaching tonight. But, um, so I wanted to give some background to the Old Testament 
because the Old Testament was not a canonized thing that, you know, when, when I say canon, it was not voted upon. It was not, it was not, you know, there wasn't a bunch of people that got together and said, you know, this is God's word and we're going to put it together. It just was. I mean, it was, it was in Hebrew. Only the, the high priests and the, the Levites had the word at one point in time, uh, you know, before, before the Greek, uh, Greek Septuagint was put together in 325 BC. So um, I'm going to, I've got, for those of you that are listening online, I have the Old Testament um, basically broke up into Hebrew and Greek and what time frames this was. So I'll run through some of the Hebrew here. The actual Torah means law. It just means that it was the, the, the thing that was given by God to frame up Israel, to frame up what Israel was supposed to understand. And so that's the first five books of the Bible. Uh, essentially, those five books were written between 1447 BCE and 1487. And as we know, Moses was the author of that. So, so we, we look at it, you know, that particular set of books was sort of the first uh, collection, if you will. It was the actual first written uh, collection of works that is, was on the earth. There used to be small stories that people would have, and they were no more than like maybe, uh, you know, a couple of pages. It would just tell a story about someone like Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh is a very, very short story. There wasn't a lot of, there was no text behind it. It was all etched onto stone tablets or on a wall, but there would not be any actual physical written down books until the Torah came along. And so Moses came along, he put the Torah together. Um, so they believe that the children of Israel, it's 40 years was between 1447 and 1487 BCE. So as you can see, Moses took 40 years to write those books. That was a part of them being in the desert. Uh, the four major prophets of the Bible uh, was, was basically, it came uh, after Moses because of course, most of the prophets were, were written, um, you know, about Jerusalem being taken over by Babylon. So most of the books of the Bible have to do with some calamity that was coming, uh, you know, Babylon or, or some Syrian country that's trying to take over. Uh, that, that's where the major prophets come from. The other 12 minor prophets basically were just upgirding the, the, the major prophets. Uh, or uh, just like, you know, in some of the books where they were actually rebuilding Israel. They were rebuilding the, the Israel, um, you know, the, the city of Jerusalem's walls and things like that. So, so we get a picture 
of the first five books of the Torah, which had to do with Israel's, with our Genesis, had to do with Exodus and Leviticus and, and all of those books that had to do with you know, Deuteronomy and, and how, how everything was, was brought together at the very beginning of Israel, how people lived in Israel and how they should live because the law was given so that uh, Israel could be um, you know, an upstanding country, just like we have our amendments. You know, Joe Biden says that the amendments uh, can be changed. No, laws are not made to be changed. Now, we can, we can have laws that we change, and they do. But for the most part, if you have a truth, it's supposed to stay the truth, right? I mean, we need to understand that truth is truth, and fiction and falseness is false. And so... If we go and make a change to the law, in fact, you find out even in our own laws, most of the time there's already the same law that was already written. It's not a change. It's just somebody decided they wanted to renew it. They wanted to just reinstitute something else into that law. So anyway, there's 12 historical books that's, um, that's total in, in the uh, Old Testament and five poetic books, uh, 300 prophetic words uh, that point to Jesus Christ. And I'll give, some, I'll give you three examples on the next slide. So fast forward to 325, uh, between 325 and 350 BCE, which was in the dead period. It was in the 400 years between uh, Malachi and John being born. So the, the Greek Septuagint was basically, um, it, it was hired out by uh, the Greek pharaoh, uh, Ptolemy. whatever you just said, Ptolemy, uh, Ptolemy II of Philippius, Philadelphus. Uh, um, so, you know, this was like one of the sons of Alexander the Great. He was a an Egyptian general that basically became Pharaoh. But around 250 BC or so, uh, you know, you really had, um, you know, before 250 BC, you really didn't have a lot of works that people understood. They didn't understand about the Torah. Uh, they would meet Jewish people and they would deal with Jewish people and they didn't really understand what Jewish people believed. They didn't know how they believed. And so this was, I believe, um, I believe this was uh, his way of being able to understand what the Jews believed. So he, he uh, hired it out to, to actually have it um, you know, rewritten in the Greek, language, Greek language. Uh, this was good uh, in a lot of ways because the Greek language became the language that was used by Jesus and Paul and Peter. It was the, the known uh, language of the, or it was the language of the known world. And so essentially, uh, you know, um, if you look at Alexander the Great, he went and Hellenized the, the known world to a Greek language. 
So the, the you know, Hebrew was only used primarily by the, by the main, um, you know, priests and, and higher ups in, in Jerusalem. But most people dealt with uh, and probably knew how to write and read in Greek alone. And so, so that made it really easy for, you know, when, when Jesus came on the scene and Peter and Paul and, and them started going out and doing their works, um, you could write it in one language. Everybody knew the language. So I'm going to move on. Um, so I told you that there was over 300 uh, scriptures that talked about Jesus. So I'm just going to give you a couple of the examples here, and I'll kind of run through these. So the virgin birth was actually put in Isaiah 7, 14. It says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel. So there is the, there is the prophetic word from Isaiah that shows that, that Jesus was going to be born of a virgin. Uh, in Isaiah nine six through seven, we find out that he was the prince of, that he would be the prince of peace. It says, "For a child is born unto us; unto us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the government and peace, there will be no end." Uh, upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to the order and establish it with the judgment and justice from, from time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So um, I actually sing this song. Uh, it's, it's actually in Matthew. A good portion of this has been you know, retold in Matthew based upon Jesus. And we know that he is the Prince of Peace and that they sang, uh, you know, uh, you know, God on high, you know, glory in the highest. Uh, the angels did when they saw the, the shepherds out in the field. So, so this, is a, this is the Prince of Peace scripture that is is pointing towards the Messiah. Now we have the coming king that would rule in Psalms 2, 1 through 9. And it says, Why do the nations range and the people plot vain things? And it says, The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds and peace and cast away the cords from us. For he who sits in heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. That's a weird word. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and, and distress them in his deep pleasure. Displeasure. displeasure, I'm sorry, in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my, my king on my holy hill of Zion and I will declare the decree. The Lord has said unto me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give to you the nations for your inheritance and the end of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with rods of, 
with a rod and iron, you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So this is actually the stumbling block of the Pharisees. This was the, the stumbling block of the leadership of Israel because they saw a warring king coming and taking the nations down, saying, I am God, I am the prince, the king is going to sit on his throne, and that he will take over all nations. But see, what they didn't know is that this hasn't been fulfilled yet. This is actually Jesus' second coming. This is when Jesus will come back in the midst, and we find out in Revelations, I believe it's Revelations chapter 1 where he talks about how Jesus would come back in the midst of war. And so, and he's going to basically subdue the earth. So this was, a, you know, I believe this was the stumbling block of Israel. So we'll move on. The New Testament. So basically by 120 AD, all of the writings of the gospel Jesus' disciples and the writings of Paul were accepted. So they were being circulated throughout the churches. They were, the churches had different letters that, that had been written. They, they were circulating them around. So each different set of churches would have different pieces and parts of all of these uh, testaments that was out there. Um, so, you know, books like Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, 2 and 3 John were not seen widely used in Scripture due to the fact that most Christian churches did not have copies. So like I said before, they were being circulated around, but there was still some books that just wasn't being circulated. So the canonization of the New Testament was brought about by a... Um, a ruler known as Constantine. Constantine basically came into power um, about three, 318 or so, but um, he was already a Christian. So as he, when, when he became a Christian, he, he decided that he was going to make Christianity the actual religion of all of all of, um, all of Rome and all of the known world that he ruled over. So, so in 325 AD, he brings together like 18, he, he called 1800 ministers, you know, picked up the phone, said, hey, we're gonna have this thing called the Council, uh, Council of Nicaea. And, um, you know, only about 300 plus church members attended. So they, they voted on about 24 canons. Um, some of just the high levels for this was the date for Easter was like the big topic. So, you know, there was a lot of mythology that had happened. There was a lot of people who didn't understand the, all the different time periods of when Jesus died on the cross. So some people would say that he died, you know, he died and rose three days later. Some people said that he died and rose on the third day. 
So they had to go back and research the scripture. They had to come together and say, no, it, from all the different accounts, he basically was crucified on one day. He had a whole nother day. And then the following day, on the third day, he was raised from the dead. So, so they, they wanted to get that right. They spent a whole lot of time on that. So there was a lot of liturgical practices. Um, if you go and study anything about it, it's things about you know how how you take communion. So a lot of the ways that you see communion taken in the Episcopal churches and in the uh, even some of the you know even the Catholic Church, those things were set up in ways to where you know um, they decided that this is the way the church should do it, right? I'm going to tell you what, here at Identity Church, we don't do it liturgically. I'm just going to be honest with you. I've read some of the ways that the priest had to prepare and do something. I don't do that. So... Well, I want to say the physical. I went to the, the, one of their services. I want to say they had communion out of the same goblet it did. It did. It's a COVID nightmare. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I will. I will tell you this. There was a. There was a lot of. Um, you know. There was a lot of dealings because they actually had a, a a big argument. If you read some of the church history, so you're not supposed to in based on the liturgical uh, studies that. Or, or, or practices, you're too sinful to touch your own cracker, okay? So when I walk around and I hand y'all crackers, see, the priest was supposed to make himself holy and sanctified so that he could go and put it in, on your tongue so that he could sanctify you by the, by the uh, body and the blood of Jesus. He would give you the cup. He would do all these things and he would wipe it. He would do... So you never, as the dirty old sinner, had the ability to do that. So those kind of practices is what came out of the Council of Nicaea. Um, you know, I, I, will, I will tell you, I, I am, I'm not there. So we, we, we won't be doing liturgical practices for those things, but we will do communion. Um, but that's only one of many of the practices that they came up with. Uh, I want to talk about Gnostic heresies because we're starting to see that come back in the church a lot. Gnosticism was a, a huge thing back in this time. And for about 200 years, there were Gnostics that basically had this idealism that you could believe in Jesus, you could believe in Buddha, you could believe in whatever it was. It, it was a, just... Uh, you could just believe, but you didn't have sin. That really everybody was going to go to a, a, a higher plane, a heaven. Um, they just didn't know basically the the aspects of whether or not you went to heaven based upon Jesus alone or not. And this was being taught in the churches. And what happened was the, the Council of Nicaea 
actually brought together all these different people and started listening to these Gnostics. And the Gnostics would come in and they would take the word and they would take what the Gnostics said and they would call them blasphemers. They would say heresy. And this is where we get a lot of this stuff about blaspheming and heresy in the, in the church is because they would actually bring councils of people together, listen to someone. They were supposed to go back to the word and they were supposed to have a heretical idealism. So did this line up with doctrine of Jesus, doctrine of the disciples? So one of the things that, that you know, the apostles teaching about Jesus as God was brought into question. The Gnostics would go, we don't know if he really was God. And, um, you know, is God sovereign? And they, dis- they described what sovereignty was. Now, the word sovereignty means all-powerful. The actual word does. But they tried to say, well, does God control you? Are we just God robots that, you know, we, we can't help. We're little puppets on a string and God controls us. Well, they came up, I don't even know if they really answered those questions when you go back and, and study it out, but I do know this. Now, this right here is you really have to make, you have to really be a bad person because one of the Gnostics was up there talking and was giving his uh, thoughts on that Jesus wasn't God and and Santa Claus himself gets up and punches him in the face and they drag the Gnostic out. St. Nicholas. Nicholas, the actual, the actual priest of, uh, of Constantinople. So you got to understand, we all think of like, you know, the, the North Pole for Santa Claus, right? It was actually Turkey is where he was from. He was a Turkish minister that went around and he gave stuff to kids and he would tell about Jesus and he would do things and they said that he was the patriot saint of of giving to orphans and giving to children and things like that. Um, He showed up and he laid the smack down on a Gnostic. So so go Santa Claus, you know. Um, So, you know, in 381 AD, they had the Council of Constantinople. So, you know, now it's Istanbul because of the whole Ottoman Wars and everything. And now it's basically a Muslim-ran country. But at the time, it was primarily a Christian-run country. Turkey, the whole region, all the way up until the Ottoman Wars, was Christian. Every Muslim country that you think about in that area was Christian, all the way to Egypt. I mean, think about that. During this time frame, Rome basically paved the path for the whole world to be Christian, the whole known world. And so essentially, um, you know, that... Later on, that changed. Um, some of the canonizations came back to, you know, and, and this was the kind of stuff that you would get later on 
is they would say, okay, um, who's the most supreme? So they would say like the, the Roman bishop is over the church. And then the Constantinople group would say, we want to be the new Rome. We don't want the church to be in Rome. We want it to be in Constantinople. Well, you got to think about this. Who is Constantinople named after? Constantine. It was a buttering up of the, of the emperor that we want to move the head of the church to the person who created this new church. So it didn't happen. It, there was a whole lot that went on about that. But as we know that the Roman Catholic Church is basically in Rome, um, you know, um, they had a big thing about allowing heretics back in the church. They were, they were going back and forth about, you know, if somebody did have heretical teaching, what do you have to do? You know, can you just deny that? You know, uh, is it just condemning their own heresy that gets them back in the church? That was something that uh, they talked about. And they actually said that if they condemned the heresy, if they said, no, Jesus is Lord, if we said he wasn't God, then now if we say he is God, then they would allow them to be back, back in the church. So, out of that whole Council of Rome came some other canons about how the, the book of the Bible was going to come about. Uh, in 382 AD, this Council of Rome canonized, uh, set, well, let me say this. They set forth a canon to, to not make the, they didn't make the Old Testament, the New Testament, and, and all that. They started the process. And what they did was they said, we need to bring all of these books together. We need to have them all in one place so that everybody can have all aspects. Because you might have some people who have never even read uh, Hebrews but was, a, but was a, a priest somewhere else inside of the Roman Empire. So uh, essentially they, they said, take all of the teachings, you know, let's take all teachings for, for Old Testament, New Testament, uh, the Apocrypha, let's take the, even the heretical teachings and let's look at that and try to figure out which ones need to go in. So they commissioned a man by the name of St. Jerome. Now I'm gonna tell you, the first time I ever heard St. Jerome's name was in Ghostbusters. And it was, it was at a point in the movie where this lady had been scared to death by a Slimer. And she's in the bottom of this basement and, and he, they asked her the question. They said, do, do you, do you understand, uh, have you ever had any paranormal issue? And she goes, she said, well, I used to, I used to get goosebumps when I went beside the bust of St. Jerome like that. And I used to go and I used to just go, huh, what is that? Who's St. Jerome? Basically, she was saying that because he was such a good person and he had done all this stuff, she was a librarian, by the way, um, that, that it gave her goosebumps, you know, 
to be next to St. Jerome's bust. So anybody who likes Ghostbusters like I do, that was, uh, that was just something I, I thought I would bring up. But anyway, St. Jerome created basically a complete work of the Bible. And it was basically, um, it was everything but the Gnostic books. He went through and he separated out all the Gnostic books. It took him uh, quite some time. It was like 415 AD when he finally finished his work. Um, you know, it was all in Latin. It was a dead language already. So only the priests were given the ability to be able to read the book. And what it did was it created a separation between the priesthood and the working class. And so, uh, you know, years later we see that, you know, um, Martin Luther and some of the other folks that was in, um, you know, in these particular uh, debates in the 1500s, uh, you know, they became, uh, they wanted to have works that was in, you know, something other than Latin so people could get it. Well, Martin Luther was from Germany, so they started having parts and, and pieces of the books written in German. So that was some of the first works that came out of there. Um, you know, so just a couple of little, I call them ha-has because, you know, the mindset of people. Uh, Martin Luther was against works. He was what I would consider to be the greasy gracer that everybody wants to call, you know, people like where I went to school and stuff. You know, Martin Luther was called, the, was basically a greasy gracer. He did, if it said work, he did not want to have anything to do with it. And the reason is, is because the Catholic Church had created a works-based religion. You have to pay your way into heaven. The priest would pray for you if you paid. All these different things, right? So Martin Luther said, hey, I don't like books like the book of James, because it talked about faith without works is dead, right? But he didn't understand that it wasn't talking about paying for your salvation or whatever. He just didn't like the idea that there was actually this, this discussion of the difference between the law and the new covenant. And he, tr he was trying to completely separate it. He never got it out of there, but he did absolutely take, um, he took and, and replaced, uh, well, I'll say this. He kept the Apocrypha, but he removed it from the 66 books. So there was, uh, what's, uh, what's 14 plus 66? It's uh, 82. Um, so, you know, there's there was like 80 80 or 82 books that was in the, that was in this, um, that was in the original Latin Vulgate Bible. He separated those books out and said, these are okay books, but they don't need to be a part of the total canonization of the books that, that he wanted. So he had it rewritten, put over to the side. Um, 
so there was a couple of criteria that St. Jerome and his priest used, um, you know, for this, um, for putting books in the Bible. Did the disciples, so disciples of Jesus or was visited by Jesus? So you find out that Paul was visited by Jesus, right? Peter actually backs all this up. So, so there was a lot of people that was like, okay, well, well, you know, Peter and James, I mean, James was the brother of Jesus, so he knew him, right? Um, you know, uh, you, had, you had people that, you know, like Luke, that went around with the disciples. He was basically, Luke was nothing more than just a, you know, a, a scribe, if you will, for most of the stuff that was happening. Um, so you had to you had to either be a disciple or have been visited by Jesus was a big criteria for the New Testament. Uh, books in the New Testament had to be written in first century BCE. So all of the Gnostic books was written after 100 AD because that was when people were starting to come against the church. In fact, they started coming against the church in 90 AD. That was what 1 John chapter 1 was about, was about Gnostics that was saying, hey, if you have no sin, then you lie, is basically what John was saying. And you make the truth not be in you. So anyway, uh, they excluded all the Gnostic books. Uh, any Anything that would be considered to be, um, especially... Uh, Around 400 AD, uh, you started having this thing called the, the the Muslim movement, where they were starting to have Muslim teaching in the Middle East. Um, so it had to be consistent with Old Testament scripture. So they would look at the Old Testament, they would look at the New Testament. If it didn't fit into things that was prophesied about, they wouldn't do it. It took over. 25 years or better for the book to be rewritten, put together uh, in its entirety. All right, I'm getting down to the end here. I, um, so, you know, I believe trust is built based on the things that I've seen and things I've been taught about, that time, consistency, and authenticity is what makes us trust the word. The New Testament was all written between 33 AD and 90 AD. That means that it was all given an account by disciples. It was all given an account by people who knew Jesus, had walked with him. There's more than 2,000 years that the word of God has remained the same. They've actually taken scriptures that you see from the Dead Sea and from some of the other writings that have been from almost 2,000 years ago and they, they have looked at it line by line, and it has stayed the same. Old Testament Torah has been the same for 6,000 years. So what we have to understand is, is, that, is that over the complete time frame that we, that we have, those story, the, 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 the reaccountments that, that Moses actually did in Genesis was talking about things that happened over 6,000 years ago. 
and they were retold and retold and retold. And finally they were put into, uh, and, and they've been rewritten so many times and they've stayed the same. Uh, in 1947, you had the Dead Sea Scrolls, thousands of documents that showed consistent writings. William Tyndale translated the first English Bible uh, from the Greek. Um, this, was, this was what actually got him executed. You know what? He did it knowing that he was going to get in trouble. And even after they told him that he was heretical and that he was going to end up dying, if they got a hold of him, he went underground. Do you know when you you just don't believe in something off the whim, off of a cusp, unless you totally have been transformed on the inside. And when, when William Tyndale, he completely translated this into English and they killed him for it. And as he was being killed, he told him, he said, he said, I don't care if I die as long as the word of God is able to be read by everybody. That's powerful. This was not just a man that just died for some words on a piece of paper. He believed it. He knew it to be true. And I believe it to be true. So as of 2020, there's been over 704 distinct languages that the Bible has been translated into. The New Testament itself has over 1,551 distinct languages. It's still being rewritten in new languages over and over. So authenticity, it means something. You know, the, all of these references that are in the New Testament, they are references from the Old Testament. They correspond together God's word was prophesied about and then was fulfilled by Jesus and his disciples uh, in the New Testament. And you can cross-reference all of that. Um, the Old Testament continually pointed towards Jesus, the cross, the resurrection. Little, little fact that most people don't get when they just reread um, you know, about the Exodus is that it would talk about how many, you know, you had 12 tribes. It would say this many tribes were at the, you know, went north. This many tribes went to the west. This many went to the east and this many went to the south. Well, if you looked at it from above, it would look like a cross. And for 40 years, every time they would go camp in the desert, they, they would create a cross in the desert. The actual lamb that was slain for the sins of, of, of Egypt to keep the, uh, the Passover angel from coming and killing everyone, it was a cross that was done across the door frame. This is, this is a consistent thing that you see in the word of God where it talked about the Messiah, it talked about how he would die, it talked about his birth, this was a consistent thing that you can cross-reference. The writers, um, you know, they were eyewitnesses of Jesus. They were eyewitnesses of the things that were going on. You know, the Bible has sold more than 5 billion copies according to the Guinness Book of World Records. 
It is the most circulated in a publication on the planet. There's no, nothing that rivals it. So I believe that, you're, that the word of God, because of consistency, authenticity, that the Holy Spirit did exactly what Jesus said, where it says, I will teach you all the truth and I will bring to you remembrance those things in which I've taught. I believe throughout all of this history, this has culminated to where the Bible has been translated verbatim the way God wanted it to be done. One of the things that I, I, I bring up Isaiah 55 because I love the scripture when it comes to the word because it says, Isaiah 55, 11, so shall my word be that goes forth out of my mouth. It shall not return void unto me, but it shall accomplish that which I please and it, and it shall prosper in the things where I, where I sent it. God's word is truth, it is life, it is consistent, it is the word of God. And all we have to do is we have to know that God is continually putting his word to work for us and with us as long as we believe in his word. Amen. Did y'all learn something tonight? Amen.